Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Well, hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Andres Acosta, host of our series, Obesity and GI Care, Start the Conversation, Change the Narrative. This series consists of six podcasts, episodes, and three webinars, which provide a comprehensive approach to diagnosing and treating obesity with a specific focus on patients with GI comorbidities. Hello, everyone. Wherever you are in the world, I'm Octavia Pickett-Blakely, and in today's final episode, Andreas and I are going to be talking about coding and reimbursement for obesity management. For in-depth coverage of this topic, we encourage you to watch our on-demand webinar with Dr. Joel Brill. Joel is an executive clinician with over 30 years of experience providing strategic leadership and medical oversight to data-driven health organizations. He is chief medical officer at Predictive Health in Phoenix, Arizona, and an assistant clinical professor of medicine at the University of Arizona College of Medicine and an adjunct assistant professor of medicine at Midwestern University. He also serves as the lead physician for the AGA's bundled payment project, has authored several guidelines and quality measures in gastroenterology and preventive services, and is the co-founder of the AGA Center for GI Innovation and Technology. His talk helped practitioners reflect on which services they can provide, establishing a fee schedule, determining services to bill or not to bill to insurance, and developing relationships with other health professionals who collectively provide comprehensive service to patients with obesity. Before we jump into our conversation, let's revisit our obesity fact from our last episode, which was, why do men have a higher basal metabolic rate than women? And the answer is, drumroll please. Thank you, thank you. That men have a higher basal metabolic rate than women because men in terms of body habitus tend to have a higher muscle mass than women. And we know that muscle mass is much more metabolically active than fat mass. Therefore, men have a higher basal metabolic rate when compared with women. Thank you for that interesting fact. And let's jump into the conversation about reimbursement. I don't think we're experts in the topic. So for the specific details and accurate information, please visit the webinar that Dr. Joel Brill has recorded for us and share a lot of light insight of how we provide one of the most important aspects of the management and care for patients with obesity, which is billing. As we all know, we've been very pragmatic. If we cannot start billing for these conditions, it's going to be very difficult that we embrace in our practice. The buck stops with billing. So we can all understand that obesity is a problem. We can all educate ourselves on the appropriate management of obesity through behavioral modifications and pharmacotherapies and even endoscopic procedures. But at the end of the day, we really have to be savvy when it comes to the financial sustainability of obesity management. And so it's critically important that we have a good understanding of that in order to embrace that in all of our practices. If you guys want to embrace obesity and you're really to do and you're within the United States territory, the information provided by Joe Brill will shed enough light in order to adopt obesity in your practice. Very interesting tips of how we can 
very creative bill for these conditions. So Octavia, maybe I'd love to share my thoughts, but I would love to start with yours. What do you think is, how do you do it? And then what is the way that you are currently billing for your when you were seeing patients with obesity? So I have the benefit of um, being in a multiple subspecialty practice, as are you. The majority of the patients that are referred to me for obesity management come from my colleagues in hepatology who have fatty liver disease, come from my colleagues in esophageal diseases with patients with reflux, and all have comorbid obesity-related illnesses involving the gastrointestinal and liver tracts. So all of the patients have a primary GI or liver diagnosis that I see, and that is my primary diagnosis. And then the secondary diagnosis typically is obesity that to engage in their therapy. And over the years uh, in practice, I have not had uh, major issues as far as reimbursement uh, of the visits for obesity care. In terms of other diagnoses, I tend to bill based on time and based on complexity of the visit. But in addition to that, I'm insured to list all of the obesity-related complicating illnesses as diagnostic codes as well. When I'm using obesity pharmacotherapy, I also use diagnostic code for medication management. And so that involves when you're checking an EKG and someone who may be on fentermine, when you're checking electrolytes, when you're checking micronutrients in terms of monitoring the patients who are on pharmacotherapy. That sounds very similar to what we are doing as well and what I think most of the people are doing. And I think it's important to highlight that at least in gastroenterology, and when we look at obesity-related comorbidities, it's most likely that our patients are coming us from our own clinics, either with fatty liver disease or with GERD or many other obesity-related comorbidities that are affecting the gastrointestinal tract. So it's important for at least for the medical visit to bill for obesity as well as comorbidities. So there's multiple codes that can be for. I would add also that when it comes to pharmacotherapy coverage, and I know that's not the primary focus of this, but sort of bleeds into the total care. I use my notes to document all of the OBC-related complications. And then when it comes to having to write letters of medical necessity for medications, it's clearly identified there that the patient has obesity. And I like to classify their obesity, whether it's class one, class two, class three. And then I also like to add their obesity-related complications. So usually my problem list is number one, obesity, and then number two, obesity complicated by type two diabetes, dyslipidemia, obstructive sleep apnea, et cetera. And on the front of getting medications covered, that has been helpful as well. I think that's extremely important for when we're trying to move forward towards intervention and getting cover, proper coverage for intervention. So mm-hmm. I think documentation remains to be the key. And then I think most of insurance companies are transitioned towards starting to covering certain medications, if not all of them. And it's just important to know in which kind of tier of the uh, insurance coverage you, the, each medication is. So you take that in mind when you're prescribing them. There are certain employers that have employee-related programs that tend to have a better reimbursement for obesity-related care and medications. And I, in particular, have found that very helpful at our institution. I'm not sure if you have employee-related plans or initiatives for health and wellness that also help out in the care of the patients. Absolutely. I think we have as well. And I agree with you that employer-based programs are probably the best way to move forward in, in which understanding what resources are available 
most of employee-based programs have in their mind very high as a priority, endorsing and not only wellness on itself, but also obesity and prevention of comorbidities. So they're starting to move more towards covering and providing services that are multidisciplinary. So you can start meeting a dietitian, a wellness coach, but then rapidly transition towards other service designs like seeing physician, nurse practitioners for weight management, and then advance towards medications and surgery. It's advancing rapidly. The importance of it is moving forward. And if any of you out there listeners are in an employer-based program that do not offer these services, it's important to start having the conversation with each of your employees to add them into what your employer is offering. Yeah, and just to add one last point to that, oftentimes these large employer-based programs are the impetus for it clinical, you know, for studies that are published that actually show the effectiveness and that data can in turn be utilized to push the momentum towards coverage for obesity care. Right, absolutely. And as we have heard from our previous podcast and from the, the review of the literature that we have tried to cover, the benefits of weight loss with diets, medications, devices, and surgery, as we have covered in our podcast, has not only a health economic benefit to the employer, but also to the patient. So there's so many benefits of Embrace with weight loss that once we start putting all those information together and sharing it with our employers, it's easy to make those decisions. We made a very important advantage in the last year at our institution to move to coverage of medications and move them from a more expensive tier to a lower tier so more people and more employers can have access to them. How? We just show them the data. We show them the benefits of weight loss we show that these medications are doing and how they behave in our real world setting, as well as in what the data has been shown in clinical trials. And that data is available for everyone. At the same time, there's a lot of talk about what's happening on endoscopic devices. And I would love to get your thoughts. And then we're going to have the opportunity to ask that question to Dr. Barham Abudeya, who will be joining us in answer this question. But first, let's start with you. What are your thoughts about what's happening on the reimbursement space on endoscopic devices? And how do you see the future? So as you know, at present, endoscopic procedures are, although FDA approved, are not uniformly covered uh, by insurances. But the great thing is that we anticipate, given the momentum with the data that's being generated, showing the effectiveness of utilizing these uh, devices and these techniques as tools for weight loss, uh, I'm excited about the future in terms of development of CPT codes and actually insurance payers embracing coverage these procedures and the devices used for these procedures. For many years, we've been saying stay tuned. And in that time, we've had time to look at the data and look at the studies and show that these interventions are actually effective. So I'm actually very hopeful that in the near future, that there'll be some changes on the horizon in our favor. Absolutely. So we're lucky that have Dr. Barham Abudeya join us to give us his thoughts in the reimbursement space for endoscopic devices. We had a very interesting conversation with him about the current state of the art of devices. But I think getting his input in reimbursement space is essential. So I'm delighted to have you today to join us. We'd love to get your thoughts on what's the future for reimbursement for endoscopic devices and procedures. Absolutely, Dr. Acosta. Thank you for asking me to share my thoughts on the reimbursement. Obviously, reimbursement for what we do is a critical component for adoption. 
and without reimbursement, the uptake of the technologies that we're talking about is going to be limited. That's why reimbursement uh, or the code and coverage plus reimbursement paradigm should be front and central on our minds and on our society's uh, agendas, because that's uh, the societies are going to have to help in driving adoption of these technologies. Currently, we spend literally millions of dollars in research and development. We have effective technologies that clearly impact patients' lives as demonstrated in randomized clinical trials. We know clinically that they improve a lot of our patients' lives, but right now, you want to offer it to your patient who's suffering from disease obesity, and we just struggle and hit a brick wall saying that we want to offer this intervention to the patient, the patient cannot pay for it, or the insurance is not willing to cover it. And that's the hurdle of these adoptions, right? That's where, as doctors, we do not want to think about the finances of what we do. We want to do what's best for our patient, but we're struck by the reality that finances is, is a big obstacle that preventing our patients from getting these intervention that in some cases could be life-saving. And therefore, the current approach has been utilize whatever CPT codes we have to get as much coverage for these interventions or go to a cash pay bundle payment model where we could make this somewhat affordable for patients. And I say somewhat because we know that the median income for a U.S. family is about $70,000. So uh, seven, uh, even if you make it affordable, it's still not going to be enough patients able to afford these interventions to benefit from them. That's why pushing the insurance agenda is going to be important. So right now, the two models is utilizing unlisted codes, and the unlisted codes include the gastric codes, and then dialoguing with the payer in order to explain to them why you're using the unlisted code and why this patient needs this intervention, and still with that paradigm, it's still hit or miss where coverage is going to be issued for the patient. Therefore, a lot of U.S. centers have migrated into this bundle payment. Let's make this as affordable as we can because we want them to benefit from these intervention as a bundle payment. But I could still tell you these bundle payments are still in the neighborhood of anywhere between seven to $15,000. So if we're talking about the median income for the average U.S. family, $70,000, this is a big chunk of commitment from the patient that it continues to be a barrier for them to getting these procedures. Now, there is some momentum going on. We got the first CPT code for a class one code for implantable devices, you implant endoscopically and remove. But now the hard work of evaluating that code, getting CMS coverage, and then getting insurance to coverage, which is still multi-years in the process. So think about the life cycle. We have years and millions of dollars for technology development. We have years and millions of dollars to even get a CPT code. And now we have years in order to get the CPT code to be a valuable or to, to have any actionable item that could impact patients' adoption and insurance coverage. So the process, in simply stated, is very clunky and inefficient. And in my view, it's not even acceptable for a disease like the disease of obesity. So we need to do better to have our societies help us do better to take care of these patients. Thank you. That's so, such a wonderful covering of the landscape of where we are on reimbursement and what's in the future. And I cannot agree more. I think altogether, as you were mentioning in the previous podcast with this collaborative effect, is not only a multidisciplinary against between different medical specialties, 
but it's also with societies, payers, and the government and all the regulatory agencies to embrace obesity, reimburse obesity, and really help patients. That's what we're here for. So I uh, will thank you again, Barham, for jumping into this other conversation about reimbursement, and we're delighted to have you as always. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Abudeya, for those comments. Definitely very, very helpful. Just sort of coming to a topic that sort of intersects with reimbursement for obesity care, the recent COVID pandemic, many of us were plunged into the delivery of health care by alternative means, namely by telemedicine. And one thing that stood out for me from Dr. Brill's talk was potential billing for the use of remote physiologic data that many of us in the obesity clinical practice utilize a lot of remote care for patients, meaning monthly check-ins and telephone calls and visits. And the COVID era, although it brought with it a pandemic, did usher in a different way for us to look at the delivery of care. And I'm just interested in your thoughts on the use of remote physiologic data billing. If you have entertained or thought about or even utilized anything like this so far. But we know lots of our patients are using smart scales and Apple watches and all sorts of other devices that it's no different than what's used in cardiology in terms of event monitors and such. But what could be the future for us in that regard? Absolutely. I think that was a fascinating to learn. And it was a real eye-opening for me since we're spending a lot of time collecting this data analyzing it with a patient, particularly when the patient comes and starts showing you a report or sends you an email with this information or a, or a note through Epic. And we're not taking advantage of that as a potential area for billing and coding. We're also having and doing body composition scans, you either using a Dexar, a Botpor, or things like that. The interpretation of those results can also be billed because we're interpreting a result of a test. Same as we do an esophageal manometry or any other test that in gastroenterology we feel very comfortable. So there is a lot of potentials, and Joel will enlighten us with this using and analyzing the wearables part for physicians, obesity practitioners to start coding for these other areas that are probably a little bit outside of our comfort zone, but it's very common in other practices. And in gastroenterology, we do a lot of it. So I think it's, it's great. Are you doing anything of, of those building and coding? Area? Not using remote physiologic data, but it's interesting over starting in January in our clinical practice for the broader practice, we started to implement the utilization of billing modifiers called non-face-to-face billing. So that's your patient who you present in TUMA conference after Mm -hmm. the visit, Mm -hmm. your patient who you're monitoring their therapeutic drug monitoring for biologics, patients that you're having to compile reports for transplantation. So just the idea of leveraging those alternative billing modalities can also Mm -hmm. be applied to obesity care. Absolutely. Let me switch a little bit of gears because in these five previous podcasts, we also learn a lot of very practical advice from our different experts. So one of the things we learned from Naresh is how you can build a whole weight management practice and around NASH. And it was fascinating to see that he strongly believed that's the place that we need to block this practice. That's who we need to partner. That's who we need to be within our GI practices. And to me, that was very interesting because we don't need to separate things. We need to join things. And it would be very interesting instead of saying we need an endoscopic bariatric practice and an obesity practice and a NASH practice. It's like we're all together and we can use and benefit from 
practicing Nash and then delivering also weight management as, as part of the strong component of Nash. So did that resonate with you? To me, that was very interesting. Yeah, and I think it sort of it illustrates how some of what we're already doing, just to kind of see it crystallized in someone else's practice. And that's what essentially we're doing. So I, I'll take an example. I saw a patient a couple of weeks ago with celiac disease. He came for celiac disease. His BMI was 42 and his LFTs were elevated. So I did the consult on celiac disease and I said, well, I would be remiss if I didn't address your BMI and your elevated liver test. We had hepatologists and we have a fibro scan. So I went, asked him if the fibro scan room was open. One of the uh, APPs took him in, did a fibro scan, and he's got F2 disease in the liver. And so that idea of the multidisciplinary care mm-hmm. within the specialty is something that is very much needed. And it really helped to consolidate his care and give him a, a nice pathway forward. So I think a lot of this we are already doing. How many times have you seen a patient, you step outside of the room, you call someone, you go next door and knock on the door and say, what do you think about this manometry? But I think the Naresh's, the way Naresh presented it in terms of the way it's crystallized in his practice, a lot of us have those elements. It's just a matter of putting them together. So if there was someone in hepatology who's kind of flexible. And actually in our practice, there is if I can catch them in between patients to get a fibro scan or we incorporate body composition, I'll oftentimes pull the dietitians uh, into a visit to say, hey, can you talk to this patient about that? I think it's a matter of recognizing what you have and then leveraging that and putting it together in a package. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that goes together with the other, the subsequent podcast that we heard all this multidisciplinary within GI as well as other specialties. And that's great not only for delivering the best care for the patient, but also to help us building and navigate the complexity of reimbursement. This is probably the way to go, what the future looks like and why we should be feeling very excited about engaging obesity and all these associated metabolic diseases. I can also see outside of fatty liver disease, if you think about from the luminologist perspective, if you have esophageal diseases, you have a patient in your office who has Barrett's esophagus mm-hmm. and they have GERD, they have class two obesity, whereas there is strong associations between obesity and many of the comorbid illness, there's obesity and Barrett's and the progression to esophageal adenocarcinoma mm-hmm. and fatty liver disease are the two really clear examples of cause and effect where intervention actually modifies the course of the disease. And perhaps folks in practice want to focus there on one of those or both of those two entities as opposed to being too broad. But I would say, in my opinion, I think those are two of the best examples of how there's association. And then with weight loss, you see improvement in disease. Absolutely. Very clear examples. But there's many other conditions, right, that we benefit. We know about all the other risk factors to other diseases in the GI tract. I agree. Those are probably the best clear two examples that we have. That was interesting also merging with what Barham Abudaya told us in his series about this new set of devices that are coming along that uh, will be targeting not only weight loss, but also focusing on NASH and type 2 diabetes and really reversing the pathophysiology behind those diseases that we as gastroenterologists will have it in our little in our tip of our uh, hands or tip of our endoscope to treat those conditions. So embracing and building the clinic around that with these devices already available and many more in the pipeline, I think will create a very nice opportunity for gastroenterologists to lead and be in the front line of this obesity epidemic. 
I agree. In all of our podcasts, we focused on primary therapy of obesity, patients who have not been treated before. But I think that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there is a growing bariatric population and weight gain after surgery and weight regain after surgery is not an uncommon phenomenon. And we also have to be equipped to help our bariatric surgery colleagues manage these patients chronically. So I just didn't want to lose sight of the fact that there are patients out there who have had interventions who unfortunately experience some weight regain, and we should be at the ready to be able to assist those patients as well. Absolutely. I cannot agree more. And that's where the multidisciplinary team is essential. And all the way from dietitians, endocrinologists, primary care doctors and endocrinologists, gastroenterologists and surgeons. I think all well, we need to work together. And definitely we need to bring along our billers and coders who are mm-hmm. working behind the scenes and, and making this happen. And also the societies, because I think the societies will play an essential role in not only helping us leveraging for reimbursement, but also supporting programs like this one in which we can openly discuss about obesity, metabolic disorders, and how to embrace them as uh, in, within our different specialties. And on the side of billing and coding, the reason why I brought up post-bariatric surgery patients is that there are some instances where revisional endoscopic procedures, for example, outlet reduction, there is a glimmer of hope as far as getting insurance reimbursements. So in terms of billing and coding, that may be a population that we that we may be closer to that we can use as an example as far as how to maximize the billing and reimbursement. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great opportunity. Just in reflecting on all of our past podcasts is that the treatment for obesity management, the future is bright. We have the pharmacotherapy landscape is bright. The endoscopic intervention landscape is bright. Although reimbursement and and billing and coding is complex, there are a variety of initiatives underway to get us to the point where we can really be impactful and help our patients. So I think we should all be optimistic about where we're uh, headed, the direction we're headed in obesity care. Gabby, I cannot agree more. I think we need to start embracing obesity in our clinics. We cannot ignore it. We need to treat it and we need to help our patients that will prevent not only other GI conditions, but also help them live longer and healthier. So I think we have learned a lot during this series and the future has been brighter for us. But with that, I think it has been a real honor to co-host this series of podcasts with you. So I was delighted to have this opportunity. And that is the wrap of our series, Obesity in GI Care, Start the Conversation, Change the Narrative. It's been a pleasure to host these episodes. Thank you for tuning in for all our listeners from wherever you are in the world. This program was made possible by unrestricted educational grant from Novo Nordics. And Andres, it has been my absolute pleasure to co-host this series with you. I've learned a lot. I'm hoping that our listening audience has learned a lot as well and will give us feedback. And we look forward to doing more of these programs under the leadership of the AGA. You can find more resources from this program on our website, including additional podcast episodes and webinars by visiting AGA University at agau.gastro.org. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. 
For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.